From executive producer Isaac Saul, this is Tangle. Good afternoon and good evening to all my Tango listeners and welcome to the Tango Podcast, a place where you get views from across the political spectrum, some reasonable debate and independent thinking without the hysterical nonsense you find everywhere else. I am your host, Isaac Saul, the founder of the Tangle newsletter, which you can find at readtangle.com. And today, my dear friends, I am very excited for our guest. He is the host of The Other Side of Midnight one of the most popular conservative radio shows here in New York City. To some, he is Staten Island's favorite son. And to me, he is a well-connected political insider here in New York, friend of everybody from John Gotti Jr. to Peter Navarro, and one of my newest political acquaintances, Frank Morano. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Isaac. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, It's great to be here. Frank, uh, first of all, I have to just say you have a great radio voice and you're going to outshine me today. Oh, so please. I'm going to I'm going to have to I, I don't even know how I compete with this. I mean, a classic New York City radio voice, man. Well, as people will soon find out uh, what uh, what you may lack in voice, you more than make up for in substance. So uh, <laughs> I, I am uh, all style, no substance, but I'm uh, happy to be here and I'm going to do my part. I appreciate that. So before we jump in, I think uh, it'd be cool to just start with how we got acquainted. You reached out to me, actually, to basically to come on your radio show and field questions about election fraud, which was really fun. It was my first time ever on late night New York City radio. And we basically offered some of your listeners a cash prize if they could stump me with their election fraud allegations And as someone who is in conservative radio and a supporter of the president, I thought that was a pretty bold thing for you to do. And I'd love to hear about, you know, your thought process and and how you ended up reaching out to me and how that whole thing came to be. Well, I'll be honest with you, just uh, by way of context, I really don't view myself as a conservative. I've never been a Republican. I never voted for a Republican presidential candidate until Donald Trump. I kind of view myself as as a populist, uh, maybe a centrist populist, maybe even a center left populist. And I, you know, kind of try to do with the Trump presidency the same thing I do with with the presidency of any president, which is, you know, root for them to succeed and then, you know, kind of call them out on their shenanigans whenever there's shenanigans And just be honest about my analysis of anything they're doing. And the sad thing about radio from where I'm standing is how rare that's become on both the left, on the right, and in the center. And I have just been amazed that so many of my listeners seemed to buy all of these baseless election fraud allegations, hook, line, and sinker. And every time I would even make a remark about Biden winning the election, I was deluged with callers saying, oh, no, 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 you know, he didn't win the election because of this or because of that. And I wanted to provide a forum for all of these conspiracy theories to be aired and somebody that was very well studied on the subject to address them. And in my research, I tried to find the most studied person I can on all these election fraud stuff. And you were by far the most astute in terms of addressing these election fraud allegations. 
So you were kind enough to stay up late one night, take callers from all all quarters. Uh, I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought it was pretty interesting. And I'm uh, I'm glad that you came on. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, I had a blast. I'm curious, what has the reaction or response been to that segment? I mean, I know from listening after I got off the call and we were on the line for about an hour or something like that, I, I heard you say... Uh, uh, this is it. I'm done. I'm after this segment. I'm not addressing election fraud claims anymore. But has it come up since? Have you heard anything from your listeners about their reaction to that? N- well, not really. You know, I do have a, 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 a Facebook fan group, which mostly has just become a platform for listeners of the show to complain about me, everything <laughs> I do and everything all of the, the guests that I have do. And a couple of people in that Facebook group felt like you didn't adequately address uh, any of the substantive allegations. But I'm beginning to realize that there's nothing you could say to some of these folks that would actually get them to believe that Joe Biden won the presidential election. Uh, They're actually sticking with this election fraud belief as if it's some sort of a religion. So uh, when it comes to challenging someone's religion, it becomes very difficult to get them to change as a result of a radio interview. Yeah, I I have run into the same the same challenges as well. You know, look, before we get in, there's tons of stuff we can talk about uh, and, and maybe we should sort of work in chronological order. I mean, I'm curious to hear as an independent, as a political independent, someone who even yourself at the top of the show describes yourself as a, a you know, maybe left of center populist. What was behind the support for President Trump? I imagine... Being the New Yorker that you are with some of the connections that you have, you might know the president personally, maybe met him a few times. What what went into your your vote? Well, uh, a few things. One, looking at uh, the 2016 election, in terms of uh, his views on a lot of the key issues, he was saying a lot of the same things that I'd been saying and waiting for a major candidate to say for many years. I mean, uh, I've always been very opposed to the Iraq war. And uh, I, I, it was great, especially running against a warmonger like Hillary Clinton, who's never met a regime she didn't want to overthrow in the Middle East, to have a candidate talking about uh, what a disaster all of these never-ending Bush wars and Obama wars in the Middle East have been. And it was great to hear somebody so vocal about the folly of, of this Middle East military adventurism. So that was like a hamburger for a starving man. Also, um, in terms of foreign policy, I have been incredibly frustrated at the policy from the foreign policy establishment calling for perpetual hostility with Russia for the last 20 years. And it was wonderful for me to hear a major presidential candidate say, you know, we should actually get along uh, with Russia. Uh, So that was nice. It was also nice to hear somebody that recognized the folly of free trade, reckless free trade. And I've been so frustrated year after year, administration after administration. You'd see Democrats, you'd see Republicans all embrace these reckless free trade deals. NAFTA, CAFTA, GATT, WTO, uh, this free trade deal, this free trade deal, TTIP, and every other possible, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And it was wonderful for me to see a major presidential candidate that said, yeah, no, there's nothing wrong with favoring American manufacturing, and we're going to go ahead and pursue a protectionist trade approach. China, 
I mean, everybody else just sits by and watches them manipulate the currency and uh, watches them steal American intellectual property. And Trump was willing to come out and call them out on it and say, we're going to implement a significant tariff. So trade, immigration, uh, the never-ending wars, Russia policy, that was a big part of it. Stylistically, I found it so refreshing, and people may think this is kind of superficial. Maybe it is. I found it so refreshing to hear a candidate for any office so unabashedly politically correct. And uh, we're in an era, unfortunately, where people are afraid to tell a Polish joke or say black instead of African-American. There was something so nice about somebody willing to be so unpolitically correct. And then, as you point out, as a New Yorker, uh, I've had the opportunity to meet President Trump uh, several times uh, over the last 20 years and speak with him on the radio a few more times. And when you meet Donald Trump and people who only know him through the lens of his presidency and the media coverage of his presidency may not fully appreciate this, but he's a remarkably impressive guy. He has this just incredible magnetism and charisma about him that you can't help but be at least a bit impressed by. So that's that's sort of uh, those are some of the reasons that I voted for the president in 2016. And given the choices in uh, 2020, I kind of felt that he was the best choice in 2020 as well. Were you surprised when he ran for president? Uh, no, no. Uh, Roger Stone is a uh, is a close friend uh, who I've known for over 20 years. And uh, he had been telling me for four years that it was definitely going to happen. I knew some other folks that were working for President Trump at the time. And they said, bet every dollar you have uh, that he is going to uh, run for president. And uh, I was part of a group in uh, twenty late 2013 and early 2014 that was trying to persuade Donald Trump to run for governor of New York. And we met with President uh, then Citizen Trump several times. And he basically told us very clearly at those at those meetings that, uh, you know, I don't have an interest in running for governor. I the job that I really want is president. So he made no secret of it, either to us privately or in the, the people that I knew who were around President Trump at the time. It's funny, you know, there are sort of these two divergent stories about the, the New York version of President Trump. And I, I speak to a lot of reporters or people in New York City politics who, like you, have known him for 20 years and always knew that he had these political ambitions. And the knock on him is like, this is a guy who's run around New York City stiffing workers and cleaning up in the tabloid pages, pretending to be somebody to call in New York Post page six and do some reporting on himself. You know, there's there's this level of the the past regarding Donald Trump. The New York version of Donald Trump is exactly why he shouldn't be president. What's your reaction to that? I mean, as someone in New York City politics, that seems like there's certainly some paper trails, some evidence of him stiffing workers at the least in New York. Uh, I, I wonder how you react to that. Well, look, that, that's certainly a valid criticism. And even outside of New York, my favorite city outside of New York is Atlantic City. And uh, there's a lot of people that were stiffed when uh, one of his companies declared bankruptcy. And a lot of the vendors that he used to build, uh, build the Trump Taj Mahal and the Trump Plaza, they ended up getting pennies on the dollar the work that they did, if at all. Certainly not something that I viewed as being beneficial to his candidacy or a resume enhancement. 
But if, if you compare him to the uh, neocons that were running on the Republican side or the corporate shill uh, that was the Democratic nominee, to me, it was something that I was willing to overlook in the grand scheme of things, recognizing that there are no perfect presidential candidates. Do, do you have any good Trump stories, any Trump memories that stick out to you from your time uh, getting sh- to know him? Sure. I'll, t- I'll give you um, three quick ones. Uh, one is when I was uh, about six or seven years old, and then one was a little more recently. So he had um, just begun courting Marla Maples. Marla Maples was uh, was appearing in a Broadway show at the time, and uh, I saw him at the Broadway show, Donald Trump, who was there, I guess, in support of Marla Maples. And I, I said to my uh, my parents at the time, do you think I can go and, and get his autograph? They said, sure, go ahead, get his autograph. And they gave me the playbill for Will Rogers' Follies, which is the show that she was appearing in at the time. And neither my father nor my stepmother had a, a pen and so my stepmother gave me her eyeliner pencil. And Donald Trump had just finished doing an interview with uh, Entertainment Tonight. And uh, I went over to him. Nobody was around him other than the Entertainment Tonight reporter. I went over to him with the playbill and the uh, and the eyeliner pencil. And he signed the playbill with the eyeliner pencil. And once I went up to him, immediately, uh, as he started talking to me and everything, there, were, uh, there was a line of 15, 20, 25 people who all immediately began to line up behind me and uh, also seek his autograph. And Trump kept the eyeliner pencil and proceeded to sign everybody's autograph with my stepmother's eyeliner pencil. Uh, so <laughs> that that was kind of fun. When I met him years later, I told him uh, she wanted it back, but uh, but he had misplaced it. Then uh, I, I will tell you when um, we were at Trump Tower for one of these meetings trying to persuade him to run for governor, he was very nice and, you know, he had uh, been very gracious in terms of meeting with the dozen or so of us that were there at the time, uh, gave all of us a book that he had written after the meeting, and uh, he, he was signing the book for everybody, and he, he got to me, and he, he knew I was working with a radio talk show host at the time, named Curtis Sliwa. And he asked me, so what's the story with Curtis? I watch him sometimes on New York One and elsewhere. And sometimes he's very nice to me. And then other times he just kills me on TV. What's his story? And I kind of shrugged. and I said, you know, I don't know what to tell you. As my conversations with Curtis have always been positive about you. And then he says, uh, all right, well, in this, when I sign this book, I'm going to write, say hi to Curtis. Is that okay? I said, sure, it's fine with me. And so he signs this book, his book, he says to Frank, say hi to Curtis, Donald Trump. And it was one of the more unusual uh, <laughs> signings for, uh, for a book that I'd, uh, that I'd ever seen. And then w- once the, the Staten Island Borough president had asked me to set up a meeting with Donald Trump to get his feedback on developing what was formerly a landfill on Staten Island. And I walk in with uh, the borough president of Staten Island and Donald Trump knew that he knew me, but I could tell that he didn't remember my name, but he still wanted to impress the other person who was in this case was the borough president that I knew Trump, even though even though he didn't remember my name and he couldn't say hi, Frank. So he went over to me first before anybody else in the room went over to me, shook my hand, pointed at me in front of the other guys and said, you see this guy? This is a very famous guy right here. So I thought that was uh, that was kind of <laughs> nice is that he went out of his way to show that uh, that we knew one another, even though we, he clearly had no recollection of what my name was. Sort of. Yeah, that's kind of the uh, the showmanship he's famous for. 
getting himself out of a, a jam in a big room full of people. Exactly. Well, look, it is Thursday, February 11th, 2021, and Donald Trump is no longer president. So there are other things to talk about, in my opinion, thankfully. I mean, uh, as interesting as a presidency as he had, I am happy to have some oxygen in the room for other issues. And I'd love to hear, I mean, I say Joe Biden's presidency, the first the first month of Joe Biden's presidency, what comes to mind for you as a as a political independent? What are you seeing? How, how are you feeling about things so far? Uh, well, I, I think it's mostly a return to conventionality in terms of style and in terms of policy. By and large, what we're seeing is not anything different than what we might have seen in the Obama administration, uh, bad, worse, or indifferent. You know, you know you're not going to wake up in the morning and find some tweet where he's ordering some change in military policy or insulting somebody at an award show or taking issue with what Morning Joe said. You know, none of that is happening. So in many respects, it's much more like a, a conventional president. Um, you know, he's done some things that I agree with, some things that I don't agree with. But um, I think in terms of style, it seems to be pretty conventional at this point. When you hear from your listeners who call into your radio show in the last few weeks, mostly conservative listeners from what I've gathered from listening to it, what are their concerns? I mean, what do you hear the most about President Joe Biden that is on people's minds that they're worried about, that they're pissed off about? Um, well, honestly, I've made a concerted effort not to talk much about Trump or Biden just because I'm so over this uh, national polarized political divide. However, that's not stopping callers from calling in to talk about him. And I would say the the consensus among uh, a lot of the people that call, particularly Biden critics, is that he he's sort of an empty vessel, that there's not much substance to the Biden presidency and that others, whoever those others are, are in control of the messaging and that he's essentially uh, he's essentially a living version of Weekend at Bernie's. He's not very visible. Uh, they'll trot him out to do an appearance or two, but that uh, there's not really much going on in terms of the Biden presidency. I, that's what I would say the, uh, the the view from most of our conservative listeners happens to be. You know, on that point, and it's, a, it's actually a pretty good segue, you obviously are deeply entrenched in the local politics here in New York, and there recently has been an intersection of local and national politics because of Andrew Yang's race for, for mayor. And I know I have a lot of listeners and readers who were supporters of Andrew Yang for president, and he obviously grew a really big national profile and became a pretty well-recognized Democrat. What's your perception of him? How do you feel about him as a candidate for, for mayor of New York? Well, I, I, I have mixed views, right? So for starters, I really liked Andrew Yang. Um, if I were a Democrat, I would have voted for Tulsi Gabbard in the primary, but I think it's easy to say that Andrew Yang would have been my uh, second choice. And I made, I, I said so very publicly on Twitter during the presidential election, Andrew Yang was saying a lot of things that I just loved in terms of universal basic income and in terms of some other areas, but even beyond the policy uh, I really like the humor that he brought to a national campaign, and uh, I, there was a lot to like about him. And so I was pretty optimistic about his mayoral candidacy. I think from from an analytical perspective, uh, he is in a very difficult position, which is right now he's number one in the polls. 
and in terms of name recognition. And the one thing that you do not want to be four months before a primary in New York City is the top polling candidate because history has shown in New York that that person never, ever wins. And it's due to a bunch of factors. Uh, Part, the media tries to tear you down if you're the number one candidate, but two, because you then have seven or eight candidates sniping at you. So I see after the poll that came out this week showing him to be the number one choice of Democrats, I see no scenario in which he will be the nominee uh, because no one who's ever been number one this far out has ever been the mayor. So on the positive side, his use of social media, his name recognition, the fact that he's the only Asian candidate, the fact that he does have uh, a lot of celebrity support, that can only help him. In terms of my personal preferences towards his candidacy, I've been pretty disappointed as to his candidacy so far. And uh, I would say that as somebody that had very high hopes for him. One, he's demonstrated area after area where he's been tone deaf. And I'm not talking about a lot of the superficial stuff like him saying this uh, pizzeria in the middle of nowhere was the best pizza he'd ever had, which goes over like a lead balloon with a lot of New Yorkers. And I'm uh, not even talking about him saying during the campaign that he was trying to escape from New York. I don't think most people are going to pay much attention to that. But the optics of him releasing a video or uh, doing an interview and saying that during the pandemic, he was not even in Manhattan, not even in New York City, and he fled to his posh second home in New Paltz, New York, kind of underscores uh, what he was saying during the campaign, which is that there's one set of, of circumstances for people with money and privilege and one set of circumstances for everybody else. Now, I'm watching this and thinking, well, I and so many other New Yorkers still had to go to work every day, risking life and limb. We didn't have the luxury of going to our second home in New Paltz, New York, while the peons, you know, soldiered on in the pandemic. Also, the fact that he's never even bothered to vote in a New York City mayoral election his whole life. I mean, call me crazy, but I think if you want to be mayor of New York City, you should actually care enough to uh, have voted in at least one election. Which Is that he, true? He hasn't yes, voted? Wow. Yes. And uh, his entire time in New York didn't vote in a single election, either in the primary or the general, which you kind of wonder about someone's desire for the job and their interest in the job. It looks to me like this is more of a consolation prize for Andrew Yang, benefiting from his name recognition and so forth. In terms of issues, I uh, really had to take issue with what he did last week. I I don't want to get too into the weeds on this one, but there's a big issue with education at yeshivas in New York City, and namely that there is no education going on at many New York City yeshivas. You have kids, mostly boys, graduating from these yeshivas functionally illiterate because there's no science education going on, no English education, no history education. The only thing these folks in these yeshivas do for five, six hours a day is learn the Torah. And the Mayor de Blasio, who's been a pretty disappointing mayor, Mayor de Blasio, finally, to his credit, over the last 10 months or so, has actually started to have his Department of Education crack down on the lack of education going on in these yeshivas. And Andrew Yang came out the other day and essentially said, well, we're going to leave the yeshivas alone and we should respect their independence. Well, sorry, Andrew Yang. Respecting their independence means violating the promise that all New York school children have under the New York State Constitution 
guaranteeing them a sound basic education. So Andrew Yang knows better. He's a smart guy. He knows there's no education going on in these yeshivas. And I viewed that as blatant pandering to the Orthodox Jewish community. And it was really disappointing. Also, his call for having all New York City police officers reside in all five boroughs when currently they can live in Orange County, Westchester, Putnam County, or Long Island struck me as very tone deaf because rents in New York are so astronomical that you can't even afford to live in New York if you're a first-year police officer because the cost of living in New York is so out of control. Also, I'm reminded of all the New York police officers that have been heroes, either dying or thwarting terrorist attacks or getting hurt, who happen to live in places like Long Island. So I was sorry to see that. But uh, look, we're all entitled to some early stumbles and some rookie mistakes. The hard-boiled world of New York politics is a tough one. And uh, I'm hoping, for the sake of the city and as someone who is still a Yang fan, I'm hoping that he gets over some of these stumbling blocks soon and will uh, be more like the Andrew Yang that so many of us grew to appreciate during the presidential campaign. You know, the policing issue is something I think that applies to a national audience. It's something I've written a lot about, I'm really interested in. I think from a lot of people's perspectives to play the devil's advocate here, and I, to be totally transparent about my views, I'm not entirely sure where I land on this issue, but I can't think of any other job where you besides maybe being a member of Congress where you don't have the freedom to to live where you want, which strikes me as problematic to try and apply that to police officers. But I think the stated goal of it to embed these officers in the communities that they're supposed to be working in seems like a positive thing. I mean, regardless of where you stand on the issue of policing in New York City right now, it seems pretty indisputable that the, the relationship between police officers and citizens in New York is fairly poor at the moment. Oh, that's exactly right. And for years I was for bringing back the residency requirement, but um, my views have, have changed primarily for the two reasons I just cited. One is seeing all these uh, instances of hero cops on Long Island and elsewhere who would have not been on the job had these rules been, uh, been in place. And, and two uh, just seeing how and talking with many first year cops that can't afford uh, to live in New York City, even in uh, so-called affordable housing. So um, I th that's sort of what's turned me on, uh, turned me around on this question. You know, I'm interested to hear more about what you're seeing on the ground in New York when it comes to policing. I mean, there is obviously this summer nationally, we saw a huge groundswell of support for the quote unquote defund the police movement, which I think means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But at least here in New York, there was tons of tension and controversy around use of force. It's been an issue in the city for years. What do you hear from police officers you talk to in New York? And, and what's your view on some of the changes that might improve the situation as it is now? Well, you know, there's not the, the temptation among everybody in the punditocracy and among public safety advocates and among politicians is to do an if P then Q sort of situation. Oh, the reason crime has skyrocketed in New York is because of X or because of Y. And the fact of the matter is, it's not one thing that has caused crime to skyrocket in New York. There's a multitude of factors. And it is amazing watching what's happened here in New York and seeing, even though people are fleeing the city in droves, that violent crime and specifically shootings 
are skyrocketing and are increasing to their highest levels in literally decades. So uh, that's been frustrating to watch. But given the degradation of New York City that we've seen in every measurable, re- measurable respect, homelessness, graffiti, uh, the on overall level of filth that uh, hasn't been present for a long time, it's not that surprising to see uh, crime also uh, go back to the bad old days of the 1990s. But in terms of why that's the case, I think there is uh, nationally and in New York City a lot less desire on the part of some police officers to be proactive. Call it the so-called Ferguson effect. Call it the so-called Freddie Gray effect. Police officers don't want to go looking for trouble, even if that means not exactly being on top of things when it comes to stopping crimes, because they don't want to get called before the Civilian Complaint Review Board or be put in a position where uh, they're caught on camera doing something that's going to get them an indictment or something else. So I think less proactive policing is a factor. Bail reform, uh, which I was uh, a proponent of in some respects, but the way they did it in New Jersey was much smarter, where they actually gave judges the discretion in evaluating whether or not defendants are a uh, potential danger to themselves or someone else or a flight risk. In New York, the judges have no discretion. They just have to let everybody go. Bail reform has been a disaster. A lot of the people that have been released from Rikers in the midst of the pandemic have gone on to commit new crimes. The removal of the New York City Street Crime Unit, which uh, was responsible for a a lot of the crime reductions that we saw in the 90s and 2000s. I think all of this has, has played a role. Even under Mayor de Blasio, Mayor de Blasio and his first police commissioner, Bill Bratton, did what a lot of people thought was impossible is he took rates that were already record lows in terms of crime and he brought them down even further. I mean, early in the de Blasio Bratton tenure, he brought crime down or the police department brought crime down to a level we hadn't seen since the 1950s. It was really pretty extraordinary. And to see things go so far in the other direction so quickly has really been a textbook example on mismanagement of a major agency. And in terms of one of the things the de Blasio administration did right early on is just at the very beginning of their administration, when shootings were starting to uptick, as a result, most people felt, well, some people felt, as a result of doing away with stop, question, and frisk, you saw the mayor and his police commissioner lobby the city council for hiring more cops. And this was always a progressive thing. This is what Mayor Dinkins did 30 years ago when there was record shootings in New York City, is they, you see crime go up, what do you do? You hire more cops. And that's what de Blasio did. Now, that has not at all been part of the equation. Nobody's talking about hiring more cops. In fact, they actually cut the police budget by a billion dollars. It's difficult for me to see how that's going to result in addressing this crime problem that New York City has. There's a ton to unpack there, but something that sticks out to me specifically that I'd actually be interested to dig in on is the cash bail reform. You know, I I think that is an issue I am particularly left on. Uh, To me, as just like a fundamental principle, it seems like a morally repugnant thing to not allow someone out of jail because they can't produce the money to make bail. You know, the difference between being a poor person who committed crime A and a rich person who committed crime A. Who's accused of committing crime A. Sure, who's accused of committing crime A. 
and not being able to to leave or have your freedom based solely on the fact that you don't have the money to make bail strikes me as an imbalance. How do you, how do you reconcile that with the predictable result of it, which is that sometimes some of these people who are released without making bail are going to go commit crime again? Well, uh, first of all, I agree. I mean, nobody should be in jail because they're poor. But uh, the way New Jersey pursued bail reform was so much smarter than what Governor Cuomo and the New York State Legislature did which is they still allowed the judges to deny bail to someone they felt was in imminent danger of committing more crimes. In New York, the judges have no such discretion. Now, in New York, particularly in New York City, all of the judges, or at least 90% of the judges, are pretty liberal. They're not hardline criminal justice warriors. They're people that are 90 to 95% Democrat and clubhouse Democrats. So they're people that whose discretion is not going to result in defendants being locked up and have the key thrown away. But uh, in Jersey, you haven't seen the flood of people being let out on bail and then going out and committing new crimes. And you haven't seen the similar uptick in crime that we've seen in New York City because the judges, if someone, they can tell if someone, based on their track record, their behavior, they can tell if someone's going to go out and rob a bank for a third time if they've just been arrested. In New York, the judges can tell too, but the state legislature has taken away that discretion. I'm all for cash bail reform. I don't think anybody should be in jail for being poor. But at the same time, if a judge can tell that a perp is likely to go out and commit that same crime the next day after being released, and there's and that's not hyperbole, there's been documented instance after documented instance of just that very thing happening, then the judges need that discretion. And some people shouldn't be entitled to getting cash bail. And those folks, very small percentage, those folks are the ones responsible for a big percentage of the uptick in crime that we've seen. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's a tough issue. Because I think I that response makes a lot of sense to me. And I feel... You know, on the one hand, I feel like you're right there. What's the point of a justice system if we don't have a judge who can exercise some sort of discretion? On the other hand, for the opponents of cash bail, it's pretty easy for them to make an argument like, look, we these judges have had discretion for the better part of the last 30 years. And now look at the country. We have, you know, over three million people in jail. Some people, thousands, hundreds of people on Rikers Island who are there awaiting trial for months or years. I mean, it seems like they've had that discretion and they've fumbled it. And because of that, we have the blowback that we have now. Well, yeah, nobody should be in Rikers awaiting trial for for years. So, I mean, if that's the case, it would seem to me the thing to do is address the long delay between arrest and trial, right? I mean, there's got to be, does it mean, Hiring more judges? Does it mean hiring more prosecutors? Does it mean uh, making sure that people that are arrested have easier access to counsel? I think the answer to all those things is probably yes. So let's streamline the process of arrest to trial to the extent that we can. Uh, Let's, in my view, let's not just let everybody out. Now, even before the pandemic, when we saw the increase in crime, Mayor de Blasio He said that the reason we were seeing the increase in crime pre-pandemic was due to bail reform. Now, Bill de Blasio is not exactly a hardliner when it comes to criminal justice issues. So I kind of and even the governor, when he was talking about the need to fix the very same bail reform measure he signed, 
he even cited the bail reform measure that he signed as being part of the reason there was an uptick in crime. And the other thing that's so frustrating about what happened with bail reform isn't just that the judges have no discretion. It's that the manner in which it became law, it was not exactly heavily debated with different people calling in different experts to testify about the effectiveness of this version versus the Jersey version or that version versus the status quo. They shoved the bail reform measure into the state budget and it was passed in the middle of the night along with 900 other significant policy things. It was really never voted on and evaluated on its own merits. And that sort of legislative sausage making, which has become standard for observers of politics in Albany, it, it sort of it, it confounds all of us that thought this was a pretty important issue that should have been more thoroughly vetted, addressed and dealt with by the legislature before they simply passed it by shoving it in to a, a larger omnibus budget bill. Frank, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to wrap this. And before we go, I have to confess that like any good reporter, before we got on this podcast, I did a bunch of research on you. I go Googling, you know, I'm looking up your name, news articles, what your history is, what your background is. And I come across this article about your wedding, which was a bizarre thing to find in the first place, because I'm thinking, who who has a write-up in a news outlet about their wedding? And then inside, it's just this laundry list of celebrities, New York icons who are attending your wedding. And the name that pops out off the page of me is John Gotti Jr. I mean, as a as someone who lives in New York, a fan of mob movies myself, I was just I was stunned. And so I have to ask, what's the deal? Why is the Gotti family attending Frank Morano's wedding? Are you in the mafia? Do I have to be worried about this now? <laughs> Uh, well, so uh, thankfully, even if I were in the mafia, I don't have to worry about coming up with the money for bail to be to be <laughs> let out on the streets if I'm arrested. Uh, so we could do, and I'm happy to do this in the future, a whole podcast just discussing my relationship and my analysis of the Gaudis. But I'll do my best to do what I haven't done thus far and and be brief in my responses. So uh, I met. John Gotti Jr. and his family when John was on trial back in 2005 in a trial that I was covering. And one of the things he was accusing, uh, he accused of was ordering the kidnapping and assault of one of my coworkers at the time, Curtis Sliwa. And I would go to court every day and uh, observe the trial, talk about the trial on the radio. And uh, because I was on the radio with both Curtis and Ron Kuby, who was an activist, is an activist attorney on the left side of things and has done legal work for the Gotti family at times. Everybody would tune into our show every morning to find out what Curtis was going to say and what Kubi was going to say. And because I was sort of their outlet to the rest of the trial, everybody subsequently tuned into hearing what I was going to say by osmosis. So everybody in the courtroom had sort of an interest in befriending me so that I would say nicer things about them on the radio because the prosecutors were listening to me, the defense, the FBI agents, the other reporters, probably the jury, even though they weren't supposed to be. And um, in the course of that eight-week trial, you know, you end up seeing the same people every day, having lunch with the same people every day, and you kind of become friendly. And I saw what the government was trying to do to John Gotti Jr. in that first trial, and it was clear that there was very little evidence uh, in terms of that case. 
And it, it, to me, the evidence to acquit was overwhelming. And I said so repeatedly on the radio. And that led to the Gaudis, John's mother and his sister, sisters, befriending me during that first trial. And then the government subsequently tried, even though there was a partial acquittal in that case, and then a hung jury on the rest of the trial, uh, on the rest of the charges, the government subsequently tried John Gotti Jr. for essentially the same crimes and the same conduct three more times. So over the course of four years and four trials and untold millions of taxpayer dollars wasted going after the government's vendetta of uh, pursuing someone with the name Gotti, I became increasingly more vocal about how idiotic it was for the Justice Department to keep prosecuting John Gotti Jr., even though no one seriously believed that he was still in the mafia. And uh, throughout uh, trials two, three, and four, uh, two and three, actually, John was out on bail. So that means he could come to the cafeteria and have lunch as well. So we would have lunch pretty regularly. And uh, you get to know someone in in that kind of close quarters. And uh, we kind of took an instant liking to one another. And he appreciated some of the things that uh, I was saying on the radio. I appreciated some of the insight that he was sharing with me when uh, w- when no one else was around. And uh, over the course of the last 16 years, we've gotten to be pretty good friends and we've experienced a number of adventures together, some of which I'll be happy to share with you in a future podcast. I love it. Yeah, well, we're going to have to do that. It might be a little too New York centric, but you know what? I don't give a damn because <laughs> it's just good stories. That's all that matters. Frank Morano, thank you so much for coming on and sitting down with us today. It's been a pleasure. I'm sure our listeners will get a kick out of this. And uh, yeah, we'll hopefully circle up in a few months, maybe next year sometime, and we'll have to get in the Gotti pod and, and dig in on some of that. I'll look forward to it, Isaac. Thank you so much, and uh, thank you to your listeners for their patience and for indulging me. Awesome. Well,